this episode we'll tackle a topic that joins many parts of the system and so is quite hard to fully cover. It has a relationship with everything more or less, it glues it together. So we're going to be discussing processes on Unix. I'm Vinam and you're listening to The Nixers Podcast. What uses does a computer have if it doesn't run any programs? What uses does it have if it only runs a single program? We can run many different sorts of program at the same time and quote on the Unix-like operating system. Isn't that convenient? But what does it mean to run programs at the same time in quote? Let's take the opposite. What does it mean to run a single program instance on a machine? That would mean this program would be holistic. It would do everything by itself and could have control of the machine's entire resources, memory and processors during its lifetime. The switch from one program to another would mean the end of existence of the first program and it would be the role of that program to load the next one in the queue and to e erase itself. If you've read the book Flatland, this is metaphorically equivalent to the one-dimensional being. But we live in the sixth dimension now, or do we? Things are more complex and subtle. To run multiple instances of programs, we need to be able to split the resources amongst them. We don't have one physical CPU or RAM for every new processes we spawn. Though this could be interesting to think about. And so we have to share spaces in memory and processor running time. And that is the problem to tackle. How to run more processes than there are CPUs. How to provide the illusion of endless processors and memories. There are many more or less satisfactory solutions to, the, to this problem. The terms we use to describe those are multi-programming, multi-processing, multitasking, time-sharing, multi-threading. So let's grossly talk about what they mean. Multi-programming is the case of a single program holding the processor resource at a time, while other programs are loaded in memory and waiting for the first one to finish executing its instructions or to let go of the processor, be it because it's doing some input-output or because it's completed. Then the processor context switch, in quote, to that other task. This is a bit different than having a single program on a machine, as you can imagine, because multiple programs can be loaded in memory. Multiprocessing, on the other hand, is a generic term that refers to the concept of having many hardware processors and having tasks run in parallel on different CPUs, aka at the same time, end quote. But this time it's really at the same time. Having a new processor for every new program that wants to run would be a case of multiprocessing. Multitasking is similar to multiprogramming, as in the processor executes only one task at a time, but it adds to it that the task can be interrupted and the CPU can be reassigned slash context switch to another one, which gives the illusion of parallelism, but is more precisely referred to as concurrent task. It also goes further. The tasks don't have to be the whole program. They could be a sub-part of it, defined as threads of execution. Now about time sharing, both multiprogramming and multitasking are time sharing, as in programs share CPU time or resources time, and multiprogramming one program as a whole keeps running until it blocks, and then multitasking each running program takes only a fair quantum or slice of CPU time. Lastly, multithreading is about having threads, 
subparts of the same program being run concurrently. Concurrently meaning they, they are fighting to get the resources. The context switch in this case is lighter as it doesn't have to switch virtual memory address space because it's within the same program. It only has to switch processor state from one thread to another, which is more efficient. So, okay, that's a lot of concepts to grasp, but this gives us an overview of how generic this is. And for those to work, we have to define our main actor here, the task, the running program, the unit that will use that CPU time the process. So we kind of understand why we need them, but what are they? To get anything done on a Unix system, you need processes. The running programs or computing tasks are running inside of them. Programs themselves are a set of passive machine code instructions and data stored in an, in an executable on the disk. It's a non-changing and static entity. The operating system takes that executable and forms something useful from it. When the program gets active, dynamic, alive, it becomes a process. It's the state of the program while being executed by the operating system. It's the program instruction in action. That also means that the same instructions can be loaded in different processes and that program instructions within the same processes can be changed. The instance of the program is loaded in memory and the instructions finally get to be executed by the processor. But the process is more than that. First and foremost, it's an operating system abstraction. A process is an independent container or bundle for a program running. Inside of it, you can find the program execution, its state, the metadata that, is, that describes it, the environment. The container also has input and output and can send messages to other containers. This specific way of seeing processes makes more sense when you think about them as owner of resources to which their running program currently needs. That means that the current executing process and activities are separated from other processes. One process crashing shouldn't make another crash, in theory. Processes shouldn't be able to communicate with the rest of the running ones except through certain specific kernel mechanisms. The process entity has a lifetime, a start at the fork system call and end at the exit system call. It may execute different program instruction over its lifetime, it has its own address space and control points, its own state, it has also its own execution environment, and is the unit used for scheduling, managing what holds which resources at what time. This is the abstraction that a process provides, a processing unit. Viewing it in another way, processes are tasks, which means they take up time, which is an opposition to taking up space. We'll discuss their history, their memory representation, their structural representation, their state, their scheduling, their life cycle, their communication, and much more in the following sections. There's always a process active on Unix, at any time. As soon as the machine boots up, there's a need for at least one process. That first process is the init process, which is the parent of all other processes. This is a conundrum as you need at least a process to create, to create another process. So you need that first stable process that never disappears. This is one of the role that the first process has. We'll see what this all means later on. 
Whenever you issue a comment on the shell or whatever, it might start a new process and or suspend another process. But not always as it might look like there's another process running, but it might be a built-in comment being executed. This is a confusion because of the conflation between processes and programs. A different program doesn't always mean a new process. Generally speaking, there are three process types. User processes, daemon processes and kernel processes. User processes are the processes that are initiated by the regular user. They run in user space. Daemon processes are processes that are specifically designed to run properly in the background and offer some service. You can see the podcast about daemons if that interests you. Kernel processes are processes that live in the kernel space. They are similar to daemon but have full access to the kernel data structure and are less flexible configuration-wise. So the init process is an instance of that maybe. Those grossly are the types of processes you'll encounter. Let's now start the discussion about some elements of the structure representing a process and certain specificities they have which we can further elaborate later on. There need to be a way of pinpointing a specific process to know which one you are talking about in the list. This is done through a unique identifier called the process identifier or PID for short. There is usually a limit to the number of IDs and thus a limit to the number of processes that can live in a system. We call that the PID pool. Those IDs are in some systems assigned sequentially and in others they are assigned randomly or some other means. Similarly, there are other identifiers attached to the processes, the parent parent process ID, PPID, which points to the PID of the parent of this process, the process in question being called the child process. There's the process group ID, PGID, and the SID, the, the group in session the process belongs to respectively. A process is also like a sovereign land with its owner, the limitation and rules. That's why it contains some security attributes such as the process owner, UID and permissions and privileges. The user ID, UID, is the user who owns this process. When the process tries to access a file, it checks if the user has the right to do so in its permission field. However, keep in mind that ownership can change in some specific cases, such as with the set UID and set GID bits. There are a lot of other things in the process structure, as we'll see, but for now let's move on to how multiple programs are handled in memory. This isn't a podcast dedicated to neither scheduling nor virtual memory, but we're still going to give a quick overview of them. Those are the mechanism that makes it possible to run multiple programs at the same time while using a single resource. Both of those are parts of the process mechanism that happen in system mode and not in user mode. Usually there's a secure mechanism to switch between both modes, the system calls. When a process task or thread requests something and has to wait to get a reply, for example, when it does input-output, or when its CPU time slice runs out, or when it receives an interrupt, be it hardware or software, then the operating system can take the CPU away from that process and make it eligible to be swapped to disk. Its state is changed to blocked or sleeping. This specific activity is called context switching. 
The scheduler, a part of the kernel, will choose which is the most appropriate process to run, wake up, next and switch to. This one process chosen is certainly a process that isn't currently waiting for input, output or some other resources. Otherwise it will create, create an infinite recursion. It should be a process that is runnable. Remember that Unix is a time-sharing system and processes take turn, referred to as quantum time or CPU time slices. There are multiple kinds of scheduling strategies, also, also called policies, to ensure the fairness and effectiveness amongst processes competing for CPU resources. How those schedulers actually work internally is out of scope, but let's just mention three or four interesting things. First, some Unix-like operating systems allow to dynamically switch the scheduler, and some other have it built in at compile time in the kernel. This is a trade-off between efficiency and convenience. The scheduler is one of the most executed part of the operating system, having an extra dynamic step and may make it slower. Linux has the ability to dynamically switch and most BSD have it built in at compile time. Second, most of today's scheduler have some mathematics behind them. Instead of plain round robin between processes, they calculate the next process to execute on a time quantum according to heuristic and feedback mechanism regarding their priority, which is also changed according to this heuristic. The process scheduling priority is another one of those attributes on the process structure. Yet another one of those attributes is the current CPU this process is currently running on. We call that processor affinity. There's no reason why a process should not run on different processors every time it is chosen by the scheduler, but sometimes it's less costly, less complex and gives performance overhead to do so instead of reassigning it to a another CPU because it's, it has some cache really next to the CPU. There's also a lot of thought going on to choose the appropriate size for the CPU slice of time so that processes are responsive and at the same time have a high throughput. And there are thoughts going on about knowing after how many number of CPU slices the operating system should recalculate the priorities. For that, there needs to be a sort of clock or counter that ticks when the process is in run mode and fires the scheduler when the process is out of time. Remember that other processes cannot stop the current running process. It has to stop itself or get in wait mode. Technically, according to my research on FreeBSD and Linux, the CPU time slice is by default 100 milliseconds. But it's not a fixed quantum. It can vary between 10 milliseconds and 200 milliseconds depending on the priority and policy mechanism in place. There exist command and system calls to change the priori priority of running processes. Namely, there's nice and re-nice, and so you can affect the math behind how scheduler assigns CPU time slice if you so desire. The niceness runs from minus 20 to 19 or 20, where minus 20 is the highest priority and 19 is the lowest. But only root can decrease niceness and thus increase priority. The default niceness is inherited from the parent process. Apart from those timers, there are a bunch of other timers stored in the process structure to keep track of some, of some time or tick related functions. For instance, the kernel keeps track of the process creation time as well as the CPU time that the process consumes during its lifetime, the time it consumes in user mode, plus some specific counters. Those counters are usually used to send different signals when they run out. One of those counters ticks in real time, as in 
seconds and when it runs out it will send sig alarm to the process another one of those ticks only when the process is actually running it sends sig vt alarm to the process another ticks when the process is running plus when it's running in system mode 2 it sends sig prof to the process okay so mainly we know that when the process runs out of time it's taken away and another process can have the cpu for itself what does that takeaway move imply this swapping to memory or disk storing its state and restoring its state and how do processes manage using the same memory at the same time again this isn't a podcast about memory management so let's skim over some of the parts that are interesting to us process is a running program. Its instructions are executed on the processor and its state keeps changing. This running process has a list of states, pieces that it can update, that it accesses, and that are vital during the course of its execution. One of those is the data and memory. We call that the address space of a process. Memory usually contains instructions and variables. Another part is the values currently in the registers of the processor. The processor explicitly uses them to do operations and to keep track of where the process currently is and its instruction sets in memory, where the variables are, be them dynamic or local, etc. Another one of those is the input-output information, the file descriptors pointing to the files currently being accessed. So when the process runs out of CPU time, what happens to this dynamic state? The answer is that it is swapped, aka suspended to memory. This consists of saving, creating a snapshot of the whole current machine state in an appropriate structure and store it in memory. Then the new process that wants to run after this one is restored the same way. The swapping of processes takes place at the end of the scheduler after the next process has been chosen. So is memory split amongst processes? Do processes have to manage that memory every time they access their state and instructions? What about memory fragmentation? Yes, there was a time when programs had to contain the logic to manage shared memory and fragmentation, but that time is gone. These days programs use something called virtual memory, a role now dedicated to the kernel which makes processes believe that they have their own continuous clean memory space, aka their own address space. It takes off a huge burden from processes. Virtual memory works by using a combination of hardware and software techniques. There's a data structure called a page table that has entries in it used to map virtual memory addresses to real physical memory addresses. There may exist some hardware translation in the CPU called a memory management unit that will automatically translate those addresses. Usually the memory is assigned by chunks, called pages. This makes it easier to translate and assign memory as you can point to the page number. Moreover, those pages have a specific size, called the page size, which makes it convenient too. For example, uh, it might be 8192 bytes, 8 kilobytes, or 4096 bytes, 4 kilobytes, which is more frequent but the size may differ per processor implementation. Moreover, there's also a technique called paging out, which, when the physical memory runs out, will move or page out the data to disk instead. This allows to use more memory than is actually available at the cost of reduced response time. 
So if you join context switching with the memory management we've just discussed, you can get an idea of how dispersed the state of processes can be. There's also a lot more to know about virtual memory and context switching, like for example demand paging when the memory isn't allocated directly but only when it's used and all the specific scheduling techniques, so we might do a future episode about those. Where does the ideas about processes and process come from? Let's have a look at a bit of history from the early Unix days at Bell Labs. In the very early days, there weren't many processes running on a machine. There was only one process running at a time per terminal. This was still time sharing because it was shared amongst terminal. It was a sort of multi-programming environment where there could only be one process at a time in memory. It was also very restrictive as disk I.O. was done synchronously. You had to wait till it finished until another process could be placed in memory, unlike what we've previously discussed. It's only later on that memory management and support for multiple processes was added, partly because new hardware with this capability was obtained by the lab. It got better also once Unix was rewritten in C. In those days, the current process facility, aka process control, were not present. Today, there are simple mechanisms to manage process creation and life cycle, the system called fork, exec, wait, and exit. Don't worry too much about them for now, we'll come back to those later. Just keep in mind that those are convenient routines. Here's how new commands are executed on a shell today. The shell reads the name of the command from the terminal input and creates a child process using fork. Then the fork child process calls exec with the name of that command to call. Meanwhile the parent, the shell, waits for the command to finish executing. When it's done, it repeats the same procedure, reading from the shell, forking and executing. This will sound familiar if you have some knowledge of fork and exec, but at the early Bell Labs days, there were none of these facilities. No fork, nor wait, nor exec, and even exit meant something different. This is how a new shell comment or process was started. The shell closed all open files open the terminal to get the file descriptor 0 and 1 for input and output, then read a comment from the terminal. So far so good, the only difference is that it closes all file descriptors first. Now it gets weird, it links the file specifying the commands, opens it, removes the link, then copies a small bootstrap program to the top of the memory which, which instruction is to read the file over the shell code, then it, it executes it, which all gives the effect of an exec. And when the command finishes, it calls exit, which causes the system to reread a fresh version of the shell because the current code in memory has been tainted by the new command. Finally, it, repre it repeats itself, cleaning the open files, etc. That's how the primitive execution of new processes started, as a bootstrap over the previous command and a refresh for an exit. This simple way had some major issues. No support for background processes, no support for retaining memory across different command execution, and there could only be one process per terminal at a time. It also had to close and reopen all its file descriptors every time, including the terminal file descriptors. So some mini-hacks were made to counter that, like linking the terminal file descriptors in the directory where the command is called. So how did it evolve to give birth to the syscall we have today? 
Fork and exec were easily added after that, partly inspired by the division some earlier timesharing operating system had, like the Genie timesharing system. Mainly the separation between creating an, a new process as a copy of the first one and executing a new process over it, which is mainly the separation between creating a new process as a copy of the first one and executing a new process over it. Fork does that. It continues to run the same program as its parent until it performs an explicit exec. You can see that this is similar to what was already there. It just needed to extend the process table, which was already used to handle the one process per terminal time sharing mechanism. The code of the parent was swapped to the main disk while its forked version ran. After that, the exit system code was also changed. Instead of rereading a new copy of the shell, it could simply clean up its process table. As for wait, the primitive version was a sort of message passing mechanism sending a one word size to a receiver or wait for it to be sent from the sender. But it was a generic message passing mechanism, there didn't even need to be a relationship between those processes. It was used like that. The parent shell, after executing a new, com a new comment, sent a message to the new process and when the comment finishes, the shell would be waiting for the message back from the child, which then would just exit without sending that message, thus wouldn't exist anymore, and thus would return an error and the parent saying that it couldn't get back the message, which finally would let it continue its execution. This was the primitive for the wait, but there was not much use for the message passing and it was replaced by the more simple and less generic wait we have. This way of waiting also had the issue that the shell depended on, on a message that was never to be received to continue execution, but the fork process could possibly send that message back and disrupt the shell. This all led to detached processes with the end and recursive shell commons that we have now. Later on, it was found that processes absolutely needed a way to share environment be it path and file descriptors with their parents. Otherwise, comments such as chdir, change directory, wouldn't work. Here, change directory was re-implemented as a special comment in the shell. In conclusion, in the early days, a process meant, in quote, running a program. It's sequence of instructions on a processor. But gradually, it incorporated more mechanism and facilities within itself and the changing system around it. It now means executing a program and its context. Moreover, multi-programming evolved into multitasking, multi-processing and multi-threading. Let's go back to our discussion about today's processes. Processes are state machines. They have an attribute in their structure, like other attributes we've mentioned, stored in the process, that indicates what its status currently is. The process scheduler is the one that changes this state. When a process is first created via the fork system call, it is marked as new. It is still undergoing process creation. Its state changes to normal slash ready when it can allocate the resources for execution, putting the executable in memory and filling the stack with the arguments, for example. A normal process is just waiting for the CPU to be available to start executing. It's ready for scheduling. From that point on, it will switch between runnable and stop 
slash sleeping according to the signal it receives. Sig count, sig continue, and sig stop to stop respectively. There are multiple categories for the stop slash sleeping state. A process can be waiting for an event. It could be input output or it can be stopped because of signals. The difference between those two is that one is interruptible sleep and another is uninterruptible sleep, as in one can be triggered by software interrupts and the other one can only be triggered by hardware interrupts. But that, that's also tricky because some interruptible states can be considered uninterruptible because they happen in kernel space, but that's also out of scope. All of that until the process terminates. When the process terminates, it is marked as zombie. That means it is waiting to be reaped by its parent. It's undergoing process termination. If the parent doesn't reap it with the wait, then it stays in this state until the parent dies and it's reparented to PID1, which will then reap it. I've discussed this amply in the podcast related to zombies, so you can check that out. The last state is the terminated state, but that's not really a state as no process exists as a terminated state process. We've seen the process states, now let's discuss the process lifecycle. Yes, it sounds peculiar because those are two distinct subjects. In the life cycle, we have to discuss the actual creation and deletion, inheritance and control of processes. Well, a life cycle is synonym with life and death. As you remember from the history, we mentioned a bit how processes are created these days using the Unix operating system API. It uses the two-step process creation. They are forked from a parent and inherit their context and then exec another comment over it to become a new program, then they can call exit to stop existing. This is how processes are born. This is a conundrum as there need to be a first process so that other process can, processes can emerge from it, as we mentioned, creating this sort of tree-like structure of parent-children relationships. There need to be a, a root to this tree. It's convenient because we have a solution to this. We mentioned that before, and it's the PID1, the parent of all processes, the mighty init process that is automatically started at boot time and that promises to stay alive as long as the system is running. Every process is a copy of the init process in a certain way. Let's focus on fork. As we mentioned multiple times, and as you understood from its history, the fork system call creates a copy of the calling process. It inherits everything the parent has in memory thread structure and virtual memory, and also its file descriptors. It's almost an exact copy other than to have a different PID and PPID. Thus the child will resume execution where its parent left off if it doesn't call an exec directly, meanwhile the parent being suspended. Fork is the only system, system call that returns two different values, zero for the child and the PID of the child to the parent. It's made that way so that the parent can identify and wait on the child. As for the child, it's easy to find out its parent PID by calling the get PPID. The usage of fork is the base for what we call the process tree and the process creation. The tree of parent and children processes. The only process that isn't forked is the init process. 
There are other versions of fork available on some systems, for instance the R-Fork syscall on some BSD and a similar clone in the Linux kernel. Those creates a process entry that shares only a selected set of resources with the parent. Another one of those versions of fork is the v-fork call, or in some version, the POSIX underscore spawn. It ensures that the parent will not run until the child does either exec or exit. With v-fork, the child borrows the MMU, memory management unit setup, from the parent, and memory pages are shared amongst the parent and child process, with no copying done, and in particular with no copy-on-write semantics, which means that it won't necessarily allocate more memory, no more page table, but just shares it with the parent. It also means that the child could possibly overwrite the parent memory. What about exec now? We've also discussed exec before. It replaces the current process with a new one, loading the executable into memory, inheriting some of the context and environment, but not the state, nor memory, nor file descriptors. There is a family of exec system calls. The difference between the variants lays in, in the way they are called and how the environment of the new process is set up. You have exec L, exec LP, exec LE, exec V, exec VP, exec VPE. Here's how to make meaning out of those. All of them have exec in them. What differs is in the last characters. There are two categories, the exec L and exec V which varies only by the way the executable path is specified. The V stands for an array that, is the, that ends with the null, and the L stands for variadic. Now, with those in mind, you can add two things. One is about adding new environment variables, and the other is about specifying if the executable should be searched in the path. Respectively, those are the E and P character. So that's it, the process is running. Now the parent can wait and quote until it exits. The parent waits on its children PID and when they exit, it receives back the exit code or status of that child process. The status ranges from 0 to 255, 0 meaning success. More precisely, the exit routine does the following. Cancelling any pending timers and ticks, releasing virtual memory resources and closing all open descriptors, file descriptors or whatever. There are still some topics to mention about processes. Grouping and sessions, job control, environment variables, and inter-process communication, aka IPC. Both of those are out of scope of this podcast. Let's just mention that grouping and session are ways to classify processes hierarchically, even more than just process tree. Sessions are processes belonging to the same TTY, and groups are just subgroups part of the same session. Those are important because it allows processes to know on which terminal they should output or take input from. It's also useful to create that sort of separation. For example, in a session, there's only one process that is active in the foreground at a time, but that doesn't always mean that there's only one process running at a time. The other processes or job could be in the background running. I've also discussed this a bit in the podcast about terminals, and I've also dedicated a whole podcast about environment variables. And regarding IPC, there are some techniques that can be used. They're, they vary a lot. The most interesting for us in, the, in this podcast is the one that has a place and the structure of the process, the signals. Though pipes could be said to be there too, as they are file descriptors. 
Signal handlers are part of the structures as they are software interrupts. They force a context switch and thus need to be handled at the kernel level. There's again the whole podcast that I dedicated to them. So go check that out too. We've skimmed the topic of parent and children relationship between processes. We've also tackled a bit with the process attributes and a lot of other things. Now let's talk in more depth about the process structure. How are processes represented in the kernel? The kernel is a program. Like any program, it needs structures to organize data. Processes are not an exception. Most of Unix-like operating systems are written in C and thus use C structures to represent processes. The technical name for this is the Process Control Block, PCB, aka the Task Controlling Block or Task Structure or Switch Frame. In my opinion, the BSD way of representing this structure is cleaner and less complex complex than in Linux where it has a bunch of ifdef mess. However, most Unix-based operating systems have the same common components in it. You can follow along with the show notes if you have them in front of you. I've linked the source code for the actual process control block. This regroups many of the concepts we've discussed thus far with a lot of more fine-grained details. As we've said earlier, it's whatever context the process needs to be aware of. Let's also remind that threads are equivalent more or less to processes. They are task and that they may use the same structure but share the same virtual memory. So that PCB contains, it has its identification information, the PID, the PID is chosen differently according to the operating system. As we've said, some assign it randomly and some sequentially. However, as with any resources, this pool is limited and may run out of PID to give. It has the memory address space for this program, aka its virtual memory, and that you can find the image of the executable and whatever format or form it takes. It also contains metadata links for accessing shared memory amongst processes like libraries. The structure also contains the state the process is currently in, if it's uh, sleeping, runnable, running, zombie, if it's waiting, whatever. It may also contain the path or inode slash vnode pointing to the currently executed code. It also contains a list of the file descriptors currently associated with the process. It has a creation mask, the u mask. It has an inode slash vnode pointing to the current directory of the process. It has some security attributes, ID such as owner, group, effective UID. It contains the processor state and context, the registers and all that stuff. It has a link to its parent ID. It has signal handling attributes like the callbacks to what should be executed when they are triggered, those software interrupts. That also includes their state, their mask and actions, etc. It has other security and limit attributes. The process also has all the timers and counters we've mentioned before, keeping track of CPU utilization and ticks. It has the scheduling stuff, priority and scheduling class. It may even have some tracing information for debugging. All of that and even more subtleties we aren't going to mention, but that you'll feel more confident reading now that you've got a grasp of them. Data structurally, processes are usually stored in multiple lists, queues and trees. Queues for scheduling, trees for process hierarchy and more. Specifically for scheduling, there might be sub-queues used to store processes of certain types to optimize lookup. 
there might be a list with zombie processes only that doesn't need to be scheduled but cleaned up and another one with all the other ones. There might also be a queue for the processes currently stopped and the ones sleeping. And all of this is accessible from kernel space, but not everything is accessible from user space. You only have access to the limited set of those attributes that you can manipulate via system calls. For instance, you can't force changing the PID of a process or change its virtual memory directly or force context switching. Let's bring up some broader subjects, some extra topics. There are many fancier techniques to manage processes used for limitation, containerization, and security. Those techniques could be using limits or control groups, aka C groups, or jails, or whatever container. C groups, for example, is a Linux kernel feature that acts on a group of process to limit, account for, and isolate resource usage, be it CPU, memory, disk I.O., networking, etc. It provides an interface to control processes group all together. For example, it helps managing the priority, nice, of a group according to some rules. The Linux kernel also offers some isolation features, such as processes run in a separate namespace from other processes, Used along with C groups, it can keep processes from seeing other resources. There are other environment isolation mechanisms such as jails and chroot. Now let's list some great tools for debugging the process tree. The ps3 command will display the whole process hierarchy. The ps command is the must-know command to check what's happening with processes at any given time. It has everything in it. The main page says it all, so go, ch go check it. There are the top and htop for live monitoring of processes. You can trace the process execution of another process via the ptrace system call. It's used a lot in the GNU debugger, GDB. There's also a tool that is rather interesting called the VM touch that you can use to check how much virtual memory things are taking up. Those should be enough to get you going with debugging. So that's it. Processes are interesting but hard to tackle as a subject. This podcast felt a bit limited in its scope, but that is because processes touch everything around the system. So let's wrap this up. Those were the processes on Unix with their flows and qualities. And as usual, there's some good content in the show notes, so be sure to check those out. And if you want to contribute, you can uh, uh, check the, the related thread for the podcast continuation of the discussion, etc. And anyway, cheers, it was Vinam for the Nixers podcast. <laughs> <laughs>